We say good morning again, and what a privilege again, as I say almost every week, to worship our great, holy, awesome God that we have. And that uh, song we just heard there, or as the East is from the West, He has taken our sins. Isn't that good to know? We're here to experience that grace that He gives even today and every day and every moment. Well, today we are going to be in Mark 8. I have Luke up there. Just a little bit uh, to throw us off just a little bit. Might as well take a break, right? And go someplace else for a while. But that actually is uh, it's Mark. We're still in Mark. We haven't finished Mark yet. We're not that... Uh, Quick, but I will tell you we will be pretty quick today, considering the amount of verses. It does say one through twenty-six on your bulletin, right? And you're going to say, "How are we going to do that?" Well, it's a big chunk of verses, but they're all related, and usually they are. But uh, they're so related, I didn't want to break them up this time. Um, and one of the miracles that we see, the feeding of the four thousand, is a lot like what we've seen before when we had the feeding of the five thousand. And we'll tell a little bit about that and the differences. But there's going to be another miracle that's going to be along with that today, and this is going to be the miracle of the blind man, along with the feeding of the four thousand. And then last week we looked at a miracle that was dealing with the deaf man. So you have the deaf man, the feeding, and then you have the blind man. And you're going to say, how can we tie all those together? Well, they do. They, uh, that's what we're going to try to develop here. Um, we know that Jesus healed the deaf man. He unstopped his ears. And we know that mankind is blind to God's truth. So there's a blindness. We're going to emphasize that. And we realize that by nature that we are deaf and we are blind. And the only one that we can count on is the one who is the sufficient one, who is the bread of life, kind of sandwiched in between there, isn't it? So we want to remember that Jesus has been um, taking the time in the last year of His ministry to teach the disciples. You remember that? That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And kind of on a private basis. He would like to get alone with them, and we know how difficult that is. But uh, here it is again. He's going to have people around. And so whenever you have a public miracle, it's a great opportunity for the disciples to learn something else. And they're going to learn more of Christ. They, They need a lot of enlightenment. They need enlightenment because they're dull of hearing. And that's what we're going to see today here. Um, Jesus longed for them to grow in understanding and they sometimes just weren't doing that. And, of course, they experienced the, the feeding of the 5,000, and you would have thought they would never forget that, which I'm sure they didn't, but there was much more to learn out of that feeding of the 5,000, so this time he feeds the crowd of 4,000, and he wants to enhance their understanding. Remember, they didn't really get it that first time. You remember there was a deal on the boat, you know, the little storm that they had. And uh, they were having a hard time grasping these things. They just don't get it. Their spiritual eyes need to be open 
Their ears need to be unstopped. They need to see who Jesus is and how sufficient He is for everything. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Why don't we uh, start with a word of prayer? Father, we just uh, say to You that uh, You being the great God that You are, we know that it's really up to You to open our eyes, to open the ears, that we would have understanding spiritually of who You are, what You're about. And Lord, we submit to Your Lordship, Your deity, and we see You as the great sufficient one, the only one sufficient for all the needs that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to start right at verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 26. This is a a big chunk. The first one is dealing with the 4,000. Then we'll be dealing with the, the Pharisees. Then it'll be the disciples. And then it will be the blind man. So we have a lot of different parts going here. In those days when there was, again, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. And His disciples answered Him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out began to argue with him seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. Sighing deeply in His spirit, He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, He again embarked and went away to the other side. And they would forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was given orders to them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. 
They brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Okay, folks, did you see the flow that was happening there, even though there were four parts? And do you see how it kind of ties in with what we were talking about last week with the deaf man? This is a long section, so I'm going to try to get started without further ado. This is like deja vu. (laughs) Wait a minute. Didn't we have a story like this before? It's not the exact same story. There are different numbers and there are some changes here. Some people like to say this is the same story as the feeding of the 5,000. It's just that Matthew and Mark kind of got confused with the numbers. 4,000, 5,000. And by the way, it's really more than 4,000 and more than 5,000 because that's just counting the men. And if you look at Matthew, that was men. And that means there are women and children to go. So that could mean as many as 15, 20, 25,000 uh, you might have a little less when you have the 4,000 men plus the women and the children. So that's what's going on. So we know that here's one of the differences. In all four Gospels, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Does that make sense? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They had that. They said, hey, I want to put this one in my Gospel too. Everyone I'm good. But in this one, we only have two Gospel writers. That's Matthew and Mark that do the 4,000 story what we just read. There, there's a second reason that there's a difference. You, you will note that that was one whole day in the feeding of the 5,000. This one is like three days and the people are hungry. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's, that's another difference here. Uh, something else, uh, in the feeding of the 5,000, you have five loaves and two fish. Here you have what? seven loaves and some fish. Okay, So there's some obvious differences there. Another thing, the first time was at a different place and it was Jewish people. Now you're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee as we have been learning that there are different people living over there, mostly Gentiles. And so now he does that miracle amongst them. Are we seeing differences here? And people yet, especially the liberals, like to say, see see all the mistakes, they can't get their story, stories right. It's just like whenever he went to the temple and cleared house there. And people say, see, there's some variances there. The Bible's all messed up, has errors. No, the thing is, is he went in there the first time early in his ministry and then the very last week, the Passion Week, he went there. And did the same thing again. So, uh, when we look at the Gospels, we we don't see error. We see a supporting of them. And I say that quite a bit. It's interesting too, in the feeding of the 5,000, you have one prayer that blesses everything. In this one, you have a prayer that's uh, mentioned with the bread. And then you have a prayer that's mentioned with the fish. Just some little sidelight notes that maybe you don't notice at first hand, but it's very helpful. Uh, we know that he's in a Gentile area now. And uh, so he makes an emphasis on, on, 
uh, blessing here and, and praising God, knowing this is where it all comes from. It's from, from heaven. We are in the area east of the Sea of Galilee. We're in the Decapolis area, the Ten Cities. That's where they have been. Um, we're going to see them cross over the Sea of Galilee. And the Pharisees are there. And so Jesus gets right back in the boat and goes right back over to the eastern side again. That's what's happening. So that's why I wanted to put all these in together today and hopefully make some sense out of a long section. And uh, that way it should be fresh in our mind. As usual, there's a big crowd surrounding him here hearing his teaching. Most of these are Gentile people and they're hearing this for the first time maybe. And, uh, and some people probably have heard him as they've gone just over the, the, the lake there. Uh, one thing that we noticed that we... Uh, probably talked about in the feeding of the 5,000. I won't spend much time on it, but it's very important. We're looking at Christ here. As we, as we look at the Bible, we, we're looking at Christ, aren't we? We want to emphasize Him no matter what we talk about, when we talk about it, it's Him. Well, He's the feature. He, he is the one that is the glorious one here. An attribute of Him is His compassion. His loving kindness. Look at this. He calls the disciples close to Him And he sets them up for another feeding lesson. But he's he's using the real hunger of the crowd. I mean, listen, he had so much teaching to do with all these thousands of people around. And you'll notice that there's a large crowd in the first verse. They had nothing to eat. Some have been there for three days. The crowds probably are getting bigger. But he is so surrounded by people that he's healing one after another. And then he's teaching. And you know how time flies. You know how this one hour of teaching we have here, it seems to me, really, it seems like 10 or 15 minutes and I'm trying to grab everything that I have here and put it into a space that is so limited. It's actually almost an hour that we go. (laughs) You notice I said almost an hour. But um, three days to Jesus. And to those people, probably really wasn't much, but I'm sure there are probably some stomachs that are really growling. And, uh, you know, it gets around noon here and we're ready to eat, right? (laughs) Well, he gets the wheel going here. Gets the disciples up there. Talks to them. And uh, he says, uh, hey, I feel compassion for the people. And that's important to know. Because Jesus is one who is holy and righteous. We know that He is one to fear. But yet, on the other hand, we also see on the other side, He's compassionate, He's good, He's faithful, a God of grace and love and mercy. But yet, He's a holy God. And and yet He says, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained. They're out there where there are no cities around. It's in the Decapolis area, but out in the wilderness area, no place around, no convenience stores or anything. Can you believe that? And they don't even have their cell phones to have somebody tell them to come and meet them there. And so here we are, uh, out there in the middle of nowhere. And he says, they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Whatever it is, that's uh, a long time for some people there. And uh, he says, I don't want to send them away hungry. You know, here they are physically. They've got to be starving. I've filled them up with teaching of God. 
very Word of God. But physically, they need to have their mets, needs met too, don't they? And uh, he's compassionate about that. Uh, the needs of humankind, he knows. And he doesn't want them fainting on their way home. They're going to have to have to walk. And it's going to be a long walk for some people, as he said, a great distance. Who knows how long that is? People had come from all over. So there they are. The word there for compassion is splanchnizomai, and we've used that word many times, and that's that deep down seated feeling, the emotions that come from within Jesus, a, a pity that He has for them, and, and this compassion, the affections that He has. And He feels it all the way down to His innermost being. We've used that many times. Let's turn to Psalm 111, verse, verse 4. And we're just going to do a couple of verses dealing with the compassion of God because we we got an opportunity here to look at an attribute of God. And He was known as a compassionate God in the Old Testament where people say that He was a wrathful God in the Old Testament and then a compassionate God in the New Testament. No, He is compassionate in the Old Testament. He has the same attributes in the Old as He does the New. He's the same God. Same one yesterday, today, and forever, right? Psalm 111, verse 4. He has made His wonders to be remembered. Do you remember the wonders of Him? Are you in awe of Him? Now look at this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Then He says, He has given food to those who fear Him. And He will remember His covenant forever. He's a God that promises. He remembers His covenant. We forget what He has done in the past. And we focus on what is right now. And that's what we're going to kind of emphasize today. But He is a compassionate God. Look at Lamentations, which is right after Jeremiah. And Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. This is dealing with God's mercy, loving kindness, compassion. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, never stop. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, does that sound like a song? Right, Penny? (laughs) Great is your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Mercies are new every morning. I love that line always has mercy for us and His grace, loving kindness. Those two verses say so much. So, you know, we might have to get in... Uh, I don't know, we might have to volunteer Matt. I'm saying this publicly here. And, and Lindsay sings too, but uh, I'd definitely like to hear her voice too. But So I'm putting this thing in. But did you, did you like the words of that song? And thank you, Matt, for doing that and, and showing me this Spurgeon hymn book. I just I was just uh, going crazy whenever I saw that book and I started looking at the words. Man, they are deep. They're lessons in themselves. Now imagine singing those. And so, if you don't mind, we might ask you to do that again. And again, there are psalms in there that would be really cool to do. And we could sing some psalms and then put them to hymns like that that you already know. So, anyway, I don't want to put you on the spot. But uh, I, I really appreciated that. I really do. I, I don't volunteer people, but I, I just throw it out there. I'm sorry. It was, I enjoyed it. Really did. Compassion from the Latin, and usually you, you work with the Greek, and I already said that word, but that's how we get our English with, or t- together with that Latin. And it, you think of com, which C O M, 
means together, uh, packed with, together with. Passion is dealing with suffer, to suffer with. That has a ring to it. Jesus suffers with mankind. In this case, they're suffering because of pretty good hunger pains there, three days worth for probably many of them. A lot of them. Okay, let's go to the next part here. We have uh, the bread of life. He's compassionate because he's the bread of life. He's already identified himself as the bread of life. We saw that in the feeding of the 5,000. In John 6, he had a great message to back that miracle up. And he said, I am. One of the great I am statements that John has. I am the bread of life. He is life. That's what he wants the disciples to know. You must feed off of me. That's what he wants the crowd to understand. He got them good and ready, really hungry, while he's been taking care of the physical needs, spiritual needs. We must live off of him. He is our bread. Turn to John 6, chapter 6, verse 48. Chapter 6, verse 48. And that is right after the feeding of the 5,000. It says his message the next day. It says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They eventually died. It wasn't because the manna was bad. The manna was perfect. They were out there so long and he just let them die out because they were unbelieving. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. This manna actually is the bread from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. Spiritually, you're not going to die if you eat of this bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's not talking physical flesh. That's the exact opposite. And some people will say, see, this is the Lord's Supper, and if you eat His bread, which is Him, this is literally His flesh, if you eat of that, and magically, somehow, the bread turns into flesh, and if you eat of that, now you're eating of Christ. That's not what He's saying, and He makes it very clear. He's saying, I'm saying this spiritually. If you partake of Me, He is the bread. He's not talking about a literal piece of bread, even though that's a symbolic element in the Lord's Supper. He's not teaching the Lord's Supper here necessarily. He's talking about the Supper of the Lord Himself. And so he said some things that really bothered people, and that's, of course, the section later on where many people leave, many of His disciples leave after that. It's really giving up your own life. Well, in Exodus 16, you um, get what Jesus was referring to in the book of John in Exodus in the law with Moses leading the people 16.4 out of the wilderness then the Lord said to Moses behold I will rain bread from heaven for you And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. That is what Jesus was pulling from. That physical bread that they ate or that manna that they ate, it just typifies ultimately Christ coming down from heaven to earth for them to eat of. And so that's 
the the idea. And of course, in First Corinthians eleven twenty four, I'm not going to look that up, but that's dealing with uh, the area of uh, like the Lord's Supper and um, partaking of Christ, and that's the uh, the bread crackers, what have you. The unleavened bread represents Christ in a symbol. Disciples had a no-brainer here. He says um, to them, okay guys, um, hey, they've been out here three days and uh, something has to be done. And I'm sure they're saying, uh, why, why are you? <laughs> why are you asking us? Right? They don't really say that, but... Um, he makes a suggestion. I have compassion. They remain me with me and they don't have anything to eat. They get weak when they walk home. And so they answered, well, where's anybody going to find enough bread here in this desert place to satisfy these people? Where will anyone be able to find enough bread? I don't know about you, but you would think they would be thinking about the earlier feeding, which hasn't been that long. Well, you did it before. You know, we're counting on you to do it. Well, they make this statement. They they ask a question. Where are we going to find it at? I don't think they got it. I don't think they really have this yet. Disciples are not necessarily understanding it. But I think it's a no-brainer. But what would we have done? That's what we're going to challenge ourselves. It's so much... Uh, easier for us to sit here and say, those stupid disciples, don't they have a mind? Well, the thing is, we are so close to those guys and, and we'll show it as we get near the end of this message. Okay. The idea is that Christ is sufficient to supply any need. Any need. The first time the crowd was mainly Jewish. This time the crowd is Gentile. Isn't that very compassionate and merciful of Christ to give them the same kind of miracle the Jews had? Remember, that's mainly where his ministry at Tyre and Sidon. He went out of the country, came back, went over to the other side, ministered to them. Here he is. He's still there. And this predominantly Gentile area, and uh, he's certainly demonstrating to the Gentiles that he is the one who meets the needs. He is the supply. The very incarnate God is manifesting himself to show that he can abundantly meet every need that people have. He knows the needs. He knows what we need. His supplies are unlimited in salvation and everything pertaining to life and godliness. he's, He's healing. He's speaking salvation to people. So there we are. Not only to the whole group, but to individuals he has been ministering to and manifesting who he is. And you know what happens in this story? And you'll notice I'm not going by so much a detail in verse by verse as we so often do. Um, it's kind of interesting. They have seven loaves and, and some fish. And somehow um, this time they are in baskets like there was baskets before. But this time the baskets... Seven instead of twelve, well, there are less people, right? But the thing is, these baskets in the Greek is a different word than the other baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. They're big baskets. Big enough for a person to get into 
And if you return to the book of Acts, you'll find there was a guy by the name of Paul who got into a basket and was lowered down from the city to escape. How humbling that was. Lowered in a basket. Well, this is uh, seven baskets that are huge baskets. Okay? That's what's happening this time. The other baskets were small baskets that a, a little boy would carry around for his little lunch. Uh, this time we have this happening. And you know what? The people are satisfied. And by the way, that's that, that's that same kind of word. They are filled to the brim. They get stuffed. They get the best tasting food that they have ever eaten in their lives. This came down from heaven. This is coming from Jesus. It's going to be the best food that they ever had. They just kept eating and eating. It was so good. They were so hungry. And they were satisfied. Thousands of people satisfied. Have you ever had that many people over to your house or invited out to the park? (laughs) Everybody got filled. Jesus meets that need. You know what? The disciples needed to know that they had no ability to do this. The inability. And they fail this test as it is repeated. They have no ability. Quite an examination. I think they are miserable failures. And so am I. Because I need one to supply what my needs are and that is to know Christ to recognize to identify Him as God the God who is sovereign over all things and I need to identify His sufficiency to recognize that sufficiency for every situation hey let's make this personal to each one of us okay let's get in some application here Are you going through some kind of situation now in your life that maybe it seems like you've passed through before? I've dealt with this before. This has been ongoing. Yeah, I had it back years ago and here I am again. Yeah. You know what? I won't say for sure, but it could be that maybe there were more things, maybe the Lord is allowing you to pass through something again because there are more things to learn that we didn't learn the first time. You know? Have you ever had to retake a test? (laughs) Most of you guys have got an IQ of 180 or something like that, so no problem. If you've ever had to retake a test, you can go, I've been here before. You know what? We always need to be reminded to recognize who God is. Who Jesus is. Because we start talking to Him like we're in control and we're telling Him what to do. I know what my need is better than you do, so here's what I think that needs to be done when it needs to be done. So now, you know, we are higher than God there. Who is it? You know, we've just turned uh, Him into an idol in that sense. Well, that's one thing. We need to identify who He is and also the sufficiency of Christ for that particular predicament that you may be in. Just identify who He is and how sufficient He is. And by the way, it's not by accident you got where you got, right? He puts us there. The crowd, they're satisfied. Fed to the max. You know what? He satisfies a hungry soul. For how long? For eternity. 
we just keep feeding off of Him. We're satisfied. Are you satisfied in Christ? It's the only one you can be satisfied in. There's nowhere else you can turn to to be satisfied, happy, blessed, whatever. It's only Him. And He's the only one that's going to bring the food like that. Nobody else could do that. Okay, hey, we get to move on to number two. Hmm, okay, better shift gears. Move it up a little more. Well, this section here is just a few verses. Now, it's interesting. He's on the east side, right? Guess what? Right in verse 10. And immediately, oh, we have to emphasize that word again, right? Does it kind of do a deja vu every week immediately? I have to say that. Immediately he entered the boat. Remember the boat? There's that boat again, the boat, with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Well, nobody really knows where Dalmanutha is, but it's over there kind of on the other side, back to where they've been hanging out for much of their ministry. Their headquarters has been Capernaum, that area, right? On the, on, on the uh, western side of the, the lake. So they go over there. But it's not going to be for very long. And you think, oh, okay, they're, they're back home now. They're going to start ministering there again. Okay, as soon as they get back to this home area, they run right in to the guys that have been causing havoc with them when they last were there. They left that area because of the rejection of the Jews and especially these Pharisees, the religious leaders. And that's whenever they went up to Tyre and Sidon and made this long journey. This has been quite a trek, hasn't it? And so they're back there. We're back. But they're not wanted. Except for one thing. For the Pharisees to get at Jesus. As a matter of fact, to get Him. Pharisees are scathing as they remember that Jesus, the hypocrisy that He charged them with. They remember that. And they were just waiting. Where, where's Jesus been? Where's He at? And they said, I don't know. He's been, he's been gone for quite a while. We're just waiting. There, there He is. There He is in the boat. Word gets, boom, there they are. And uh, I don't know how all that happened. But these guys had seen miracle after miracle. Heard His teaching. You know, People were amazed, astounded. And Jesus, um, of course, addressed them with how they had led their lives, led their whole lives with hypocrisy. Jesus had said, they honor God with their lips, but their heart is far away. They did all the outward things and their own rules and their legalism. And what are they wanting? They're wanting an outward sign. They don't get it. They are blind. The disciples are blind, not getting understood, but there's a difference. These hard-hearted people, religious leaders, are wanting a physical sign. Okay, if you're that great, they're testing. We want to see a sign from heaven. We want to see something spectacular that just happens up in the sky. To split that sky and let us see this. Now, the Pharisees actually had taught that when the Messiah would come, if you're the ruling Messiah, there should be this happening. On the pinnacle of the temple, appearing there to everybody, would be the Messiah on this temple, up in the sky like this, appearing above it, 
and that he would be proclaiming deliverance for all the people and displaying light from heaven. That's what they taught. That sounds familiar. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? And, you know, to elevate himself up on the temple? Well, Jesus doesn't play into the hands of the devil, doesn't play into the hands of the Pharisees. He's not going to put on a display, a show here to satisfy their... You know what? They would have wanted another sign. And then another. You know what? His route is not easy. He didn't take the easy route. He took the route of the cross. That's the hard way. Satan was wanting him to take his kingship without going to the cross. I'll grant this to you, Satan say, Yeah, right. Matter of fact, in Mark 3.22, these Pharisees were already saying, you do the works of Beelzebub. The works of the devil. Your miracles. Yeah, they couldn't deny the miracles that he had done. They already seen the signs, hadn't they? They'd seen sign after sign after sign. What do you want? We want to see a sign from heaven. You've seen it all. Matter of fact, the biggest sign is standing right in front of them. They're seeing Him face to face. God has come to earth. What, what do you want? The sign of Jonah was going to be the only sign that they were going to get. We noticed that in, in other places, Jesus will say that to them. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And that's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And they denied that too, didn't they? The resurrection. Well, Jesus has an anger about him. And it's right. It's righteous. It's perfectly right for him to get angry here. And he does it like this in verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit. You say, why, why are you saying anger? Oh, a sigh is a sigh that is from the deep down below. And it goes upward from the very depths of your being, he sighs. Intense emotion is what's happening here. That's what the language is exhibiting here. So if you can get that picture of it, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek a sign? I'm not going to give you a sign. No sign. You've had your chance. That's it. You already had it. No other signs. No displays. And you know what? One of the most tragic things that could be said is right here in verse 13. Leaving them. Leaving them. He turns his back on them. Gets into the boat with the disciples. They leave. They go to the other side. So, they were just on the eastern side went over to the western side. There are the Pharisees. And immediately, he's greeted by them. And he says, I'm not giving you a sign. They get in the boat and they go right back to the other side on the east side. Now that's some kind of boat ride. And I can tell you, those disciples are really hungry. And through all this, they're not getting it. They want to get their hunger Met, or if they did at that time, which they probably did, they're getting hungry again because it's a you know a long ride and it's time for a snack, you know. And they probably 
were thinking, we'll, we'll take this bread over with us and have a snack. Well, at the time, they didn't even think too much about that because they were full and they were satisfied. So we move on to the next part. Do you see how this is tying together? I hope it's tying together and making it a little bit easier. Verse 14. And they'd forgotten to take bread. And did not have more than one loaf and the boat with them. Remember, a, a, a loaf is not like a Wonder Bread loaf. It's one of those, like a biscuit. Okay. And so he was giving orders to them, saying, okay, and he knows that they have this deal with the physical bread here. They're, you know, I mean, they're just seeing some amazing things, and Mary's been talking with the Pharisees. Pharisees don't get it at all; they're totally blind. That's the blindness of Jesus' enemies. They are hardened. And Jesus shows how hardened they are. And He leaves. I mean, it's it for those guys. That's it. The disciples. They've got their mind on something else. He's giving orders. He's commanding them, watch out. Be alert. Right? You get that a lot from Jesus, right? And I imagine Peter heard that a lot, and we see Peter use that you know, in the book of Peter. Watch out. Beware, that's another key word, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's interesting that he gets those in there. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, they just were with the Pharisees. Well, that's who the guys, the disciples here, had kind of held up high and high esteem for a long time until they met Jesus. And um, because they were the leaders. They probably pretty well <coughs> followed a lot of the things that they said. And uh, so Jesus is saying, watch out. Beware. That's dangerous. Beware of the leaven. Of course, leaven represents in the Scripture, usually, not always, but usually it represents yeast, which represents what? Sin, evil, wickedness. A little bit. You have leaven that goes in... Uh, or, or yeast and goes in. Of course, we get that bread out of it. All it takes is just a little bit. You remember at Passover, um, the Jewish people are to clean out all the leaven in their houses. Do you remember that? Every bit of the leaven or yeast is to be gotten, cleaned out. They would take little bitty brushes and go into the nooks and crannies of the cabinet, in the corners, wherever, and scoop that up and take it outside and get rid of it. Because it's representing sin and we get cleansed. And they start off that whole Passover week with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Remember that? And of course... What a great teaching tool that Jesus uses later for the Lord's Supper, which is the unleavened bread. There's no leaven in it. It doesn't rise. Other times of the year, they will have yeast and it will rise and they have those great big loaves. And, uh, you know, you think of that. And nice, fluffy bread mm, with maybe a little bit of uh, goat's milk butter on it or something. Anyway, okay. Um, we've seen where Jesus is giving the warning and they're discussing now the disciples after he says that he says beware of them he, they're talking about bread still talking about no bread he says he gives them a warning this is a warning from from God himself 
And the one warning is the hypocrisy. Because the Pharisees, that's really what they're known for. Jesus charged them as hypocrites. Hypocrites. Woe to you! Right? You hypocrites. The Pharisees were very religious. But they couldn't understand the most basic spiritual truth. Even though they were supposed to be discerners of the law. The lawyers, scribes, Pharisees. They could not see the identity of Jesus and they couldn't see His sufficiency. The disciples didn't do very good with that either, did they? But at least there's something with them that He can work with. That's what He's going to continue to do. So, the Pharisees, hypocrisy, what's the leaven of the of Herod? Well, Herod was the great king. He was really a pawn underneath the uh, emperor of Rome. But he thought he was something. And, of course, he lived in a nice place, had servants, people all around him. He's calling some shots. Very worldly. Herod represents a worldly leader or just worldliness. We have hypocrisy. We have worldliness. And Jesus is saying, beware. Beware of that. Just a little bit of that. And that can mess you up. They're missing the point. They're missing the whole point. He's telling them this, and he's and they say, "We don't have any bread." <laughs> what? Are, why aren't they asking the question? What do you mean? They're saying, "Hey, hey did, didn't didn't you, Peter? Didn't you bring the bread? Yeah. Where, where's it at?" Oh, they missed it. And Christians are like that today. He had multiplied bread on two occasions. Yeah, that's the physical aspect. Disciples are still thinking about bread. They're not tuned in with what Jesus is doing. And so, Jesus is wanting to do this. He wants to feed their souls. And they're thinking about their stomach. And Jesus is thinking spiritual truth, souls, the message is this. You don't need to worry about your lunch whenever the Lord is in the boat. Because He'll take care of that. Look in John 6, 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see how people took it. Literally, I think he's just going to start peeling off flesh and give it to people. How's he going to do that? Of course they didn't think that. But. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and he's not talking about being a cannibal, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's not talking the physical stuff here. He's talking about Him 
His person. He says, I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh, and he explains it here, is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, the physical sense, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This this was after the feeding of the 5,000. Now look in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. He explains this. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. He's talking spiritual things. He takes a physical picture, illustrates his whole concept here of saying, it's me you partake of. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a picture. So simple, but so profound. You know what? Disciples didn't get it. Did you see it? Back in Mark? They didn't get it in in, uh, the other time. We too do not get it. You know what? We worry how we're going to be fed. Uh, or how God, how's God going to take care of us here? Uh, boy, this is a, a terrible situation. What about tomorrow? Jesus explains that. You know, don't be anxious. Don't worry about tomorrow. You have enough things today to deal with. Don't worry about the future. I'll take care of it. You know what? We tend to forget His identity and we tend to forget His sufficiency. Aren't we just like the disciples? Do you get it? We're talking on a spiritual tone. This is, this is so much like the disciples. We're not sure if we can handle the situation. But it's He who handles it. We're blind to the things that God is doing right now and what He's going to do in the future. We're blind to that, and yet you know, what we do is we forget all the blessings that He has given us over the course of our time here on earth. We forget those. We even forget the last blessing He gave us. I mean, He's just blessing us all day long. I mean, we've already been blessed today. Even before we got here, we were blessed just constantly. These disciples are spiritually dull. They're blind in some sense. It's like they have um, some kind of glasses on. They they can't see very good at all. Mirror. It's like a... We we see dimly, don't we? We don't really see very good. The mirrors that they use, of course it's found in 1 Corinthians, the mirrors were like a metal. And you could see yourself, but it wasn't a very good image of it. You know? And uh, that's the way it is right now. We don't see clearly all the things that God is doing. So we tend to forget those blessings. Uh, We tend to forget the sufficiency of Christ. We must understand the sufficiency of the Lord. He's more than sufficient. Just like the disciples, aren't we? So we can't make too much fun of them. I have to be careful. God's people forget blessings. Where do they put their concentration on? The present 
need or trial they're going through and they're on that right there and they tend to forget. You know what the psalmist said in Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. You know what? I don't know about you guys, but I can count many occasions when the Lord meets a need for me to be done in an amazing way and sometimes I forget about what He did later on. I have a tendency to forget how the Lord met the previous need. He's always come through, hasn't He? We become frightened. We start complaining, worrying, having anxious moments. And He says, don't be anxious. What's that mean? Don't worry. What is worry? What's the opposite of doubt? What does that mean? It's a sin. The lesson is taught here to the disciples 2,000 years later. I think we too need to grab that. Jesus now questions these disciples. and It's like a machine gun. And man, I mean, it's a barrage of questions. I think there are like nine of them here. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, he just shoots them with these questions. I mean, he's discharging rounds. Oh, it has to hit. He, you know, if I can say it in a human way, he is frustrated at their slowness, their dullness, thinking on the physical things while he's thinking of spiritual things. They fail to see. You know what he's doing when he starts asking these questions? He's drumming it into them. I want you to get this point. You have a need to remember. Don't you remember? That's one of the questions. Let's let's go through these questions. He's aware of what they're thinking, right? Verse 17. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Why are you talking about that? Do you not yet see or understand? Don't you see? Don't you understand? Don't you perceive this? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Remember the Pharisees? And having ears, do you not hear? Another question, taken right out of the Old Testament. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked? Don't you remember that? They said to him, 12. Well, they remembered that. When I broke the seven for 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Do you know who I am? Do you know my sufficiency? Don't you remember? And we come to the last one. And this is going to be quick. And basically we read the story and I'll just shoot right through here. Disciples are in danger of stumbling and illustrates the very condition by performing a rather unique healing. You remember the the blind or the deaf man, how he had some things done to him by Jesus that was a little different than the way he ordinarily did. Uh, he touched him on his tongue. He spit, touched the man's tongue. Then he put his fingers in his ears. Now he didn't usually do that kind of thing, and he took him away from the crowd. Well, this is interesting. On the other side of this, now you have a blind man. Deaf man, blind man. A lot of significant things that are the same kind of thing. He's doing 
some things here that are rather unique. Takes him not only away from the crowd here, but where does he take him out of? The village. He takes him out of the village. I think that's rather interesting. Now, they're, they're at Beth, Bethsaida at this time. Okay? He doesn't want Bethsaida to experience this miracle because he's done with them. He does a unique healing in that it's partial healing at first. The Lord never just partially heals him and that's it and lets you kind of heal up for the next few years. No, when he does a miracle, it's boom, that's it. You know, But he does it in parts. It's one of the greatest illustrations in the Word of God how often we are blind, we miss the point, we're slow to learn what the Lord would have us see clearly. We have had something happen to us like the blind man we're, we're blind, but now we see... Well, this man gives an illustration where the disciples are at. It wasn't the sense that they saw very clearly. They saw trees. I mean, men like trees. And so it was distorted in what they were saying. Are you getting it? This is where the disciples were at. They were different than the hard-hearted, um, blind Pharisees. They're blind in the sense that, okay, Christ has given them who He is. And they kind of have an idea, but they can't grasp it. And they're still thinking so many earthly things. And didn't He say to the disciples as He was crossing over in the boat, Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? Eyes, ears. Last week, deaf man. We are deaf to the things of God. We can't hear. We can't speak. Blind man. Cannot see. Cannot hear spiritual things. Cannot see spiritual things. We are depraved people. In the need of some foreign person to come and deliver us out of that kind of bondage. Physically, we may not be blind, may not be deaf, but spiritually that's the way it is with people. And even in our spiritual walk, in our day that we have even now, we have trouble seeing spiritual things. We just don't see what he's doing. So the blind man, like a lot of others, has friends and they bring him up there. I'm not so sure if we don't hear him say anything. I'm not so sure where his faith was at. They definitely had some kind of faith that he could do it. Uh, he's not begging himself as we see in, in this. And of course, uh, you see another blind man that says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember that? A blind man who knew that Jesus could do it. Please hear me, you know. Well, here we have something amazing. Bethsaida is not going to experience this miracle. Don't even enter the village. You remember in Matthew 11, Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! Do you remember that? All the works of God 
the majority of them were done in this area. In that city, they had seen miracle after miracle, time after time. And he says, those miracles which were done in you, if they had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes than for you. You see, they had already been judged. Jesus had left there not to come back and to do any miracles. The hardness of their hearts, their willful unbelief. Imagine it. No more signs would be given to them as really also to the Pharisees, which he has said, our knowledge sometimes of him is partial. His identity, his sufficiency. We know about it, but yet we don't see all of what it is. The blind man saw partially. But boy, his faith was immensely increased. He's still immature. And then all of a sudden, he sees. And this man gets it. The man gets it. He's restored. He saw clearly, as it said... um, in verse 25, laid his hands, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes. He looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. 2020. Perfect. That's the idea. Perfect clearness. From afar, a perfect healing here. You know what? The disciples couldn't get the fact that Jesus has to go to the cross, He has to die, then He has to resurrect. They didn't get that till after the fact of the matter. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We have partial knowledge of Him. We have everything we need, but we don't see this clearly. But strive after it. Go after God's Word. We don't want a partial work here. We want that to continue. And He wants us to grow in Him, to see Him more. He wants us to identify Him and uh, His sufficiency. Nothing can be done for the blind that desire to be blind. The hard-hearted Pharisees. Nothing can be done. A dull-hearted believer. God can do it, though, to anybody who is dead. And it's up to Him to do that, isn't it? And that's an amazing thing. I'm calling upon all of us as we close out here to search our hearts now, but to search our hearts and meaningfully say to ourselves that we want to commit ourselves to Him afresh. Commit ourselves to the Lord and just let Him have His way in our lives. And there are ways that we're just holding on to and being very selfish, prideful, and thinking of the physical things rather than the ministry that Jesus has set forth for you as the disciples had the same ministry. What are you doing with it? Why are you blind? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this story. Thank You for these illustrations, the miracles. And then how we can identify with the disciples. And we'd pray if there was somebody that was so hardened like the Pharisees that they would look at Christ and turn to Him. For He's the only answer. May we always recognize the very sufficiency of Christ for everything, no matter what we're dealing with. Lord, help us. Give us that faith. Help our unbelief. For we battle with that every day.
your son's name. What a wonder he is. And we are in awe of him. Thank you for this day and the time that we have to just finish up with our worship here now. In Jesus' name, amen. And of course, I can't think of anything more fitting to close with uh, talking about feeding the five or the four thousand, the five thousand, or the thousands, and him being the bread of heaven. That's our message we've given, so we uh, will be able to partake in this, showing our openness, our, our eyes are opened a little bit more of who he is spiritually. visual uh, this morning says Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen we must know the depth and malignity of our disease in order to appreciate the great position when we see that that is the problem we recognize sin is where he brings us out of and that bondage and seeing the depth and how diseased that is when we recognize that and we desire the physician to come in and perform surgery, it sets us free, brings us out of that bondage, and uh, he, he heals us. So we value Christ, don't we? And as we partake of these elements that picture Jesus Christ, what a time of worship this is as we see that the sin has been taken out. This is unleavened bread representing no sin. There was no sin in Christ. And as far as God is concerned, that's been taken away. But it should behoove us in our walk where we still battle sin, we still struggle, and we do sin. And He desires us to be more insightful into who He is and to recognize that sin that is still a disease and have him continue to work on us. And so that's what we're saying this morning as we commit more to this bread of heaven as we partake of him. Isn't it great to know that 
by His grace we have been saved and we live by it every moment. Blessed art Thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from heaven. Father, we realize that this cup represents the blood of Christ that was spilled at the cross. And that's where we are redeemed. That is what satisfies the Father's justice. The work had been done, the perfect work by Christ on earth, and then the work on the cross. And we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. How precious that is. Father, forgive us of our sins and help us to defeat those sins and only through the power of Your Spirit, Your Word, can those things be chopped away. What a blessing it is. Let's say that blessing. Our Father, our, <laughs> our Father who art in heaven, blessed art Thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. Does it make you rejoice? Mm-hmm. Rejoice. And we have a guest here today, and I will ask your name. And if you can say to everybody. Um, my name is Lori Thomas. Lori, it is a special privilege to have you today. We are certainly glad to worship with you. You're welcome here anytime. We are here Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights or any time that you would need to be. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, guys. You're dismissed. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Amen.